From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. Maps are fascinating to look at, at least they always have been in my mind, and oftentimes when I'm trying to learn something about an area, first thing I do is I get a map out and look at it. Maps have lots of things on them. They have roads, they have rivers, they have property markers sometimes, and sometimes they have names. And when I was thinking of what I was going to do for this episode of Land Stories, the, the names that occur on maps is what occurred to me first. And I have worked at Lansing Community College for many years, and one of the great joys of working at Lansing Community College is being able to walk around the city of Lansing on one's lunch break, which I did for many years when I worked at our downtown campus. And being a historian and somebody who has always been fascinated at how places got their names, I used to always look at the street names, especially when I first started working at the college and hadn't lived in Lansing for very long, and thought to myself, well, some of these is pretty easy to figure out what they're named after. A lot of the streets in downtown Lansing are named after Michigan counties. So we have a Kalamazoo Street, we have an Elegant Street, we have a Washtenaw Street, and so on and so forth. Um, But there are other streets that are named after people. Seymour Street, for example, is named after one of the very first people from the state of New York to come to Lansing. The state of New York actually turns out to be the source of a lot of place names, not only in Lansing, but in Michigan. And it is the source for the name of Lansing itself. Now, in this episode of Land Stories, we're going to talk about names, particularly the name Lansing. Where does it come from? How did Lansing come to be named Lansing? And probably the most interesting part of the story, at least in my mind, is who was John Lansing Jr., the man that Lansing, Michigan, is named after. And I personally find that second part of our Lance story story here, who John Lansing Jr. was, to be the most interesting part. And I hope you do too. So, Lansing, Michigan turned out to be a place that eventually would attract a lot of settlers from New York. And as it turns out, a lot of the very first people who came into Michigan from other parts of the United States did come from New York. There are many counties, cities, and streets within those cities that have a New York connection. And Lansing happens to be one of them. There are a lot of reasons for that, the uh, biggest of which being in the 1820s, one of America's first great engineering accomplishments occurred, and that was the completion of the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal allowed for one to navigate waters all the way from New York City to the Great Lakes, which meant people could get on a barge and they could travel from places in New York State to Lake Erie. At that point, they could take a ship to Detroit and from there embark on their new life in the frontier lands of Michigan. And that's a story that many people had as part of their family history when Michigan's being settled. Lansing turned out to be 
an important person in New York history, John Lansing Jr. was born in Albany, New York in 1754. The 30th of January, actually, 1754. Lansing came from a family of Dutch ancestry, which was quite common in New York at the time, actually. If we turn the story back a few more years, New York was actually founded as New Amsterdam. New York City was. It was founded as New Amsterdam because the colony of New York was actually founded as New Netherland by the Dutch way back in the early 1600s. After a series of wars with the British, eventually the British gained hold of that colony and they renamed it New York, both the colony and the city, named in honor of the Duke of York. So the Dutch were actually the first Europeans to settle into the Hudson River Valley. And their ancestry, therefore, can be traced back centuries. And the Lansing family enters into our picture precisely along these lines. A Lansing ancestor who came from the eastern part of the Netherlands immigrated to the Dutch colony. And from that point on, established the Lansing family. So by the time John Lansing Jr. comes into this world on 30th of January 1754, the Lansing family had already been quite prominent in that part of New York. John Tenike Lansing Jr., he turned out to have quite the life. And we're going to get to that in a moment here, but let's first jump ahead a little bit in our chronology and complete the story of how Lansing, Michigan came to be and came to be named after John Lansing Jr. And we have to go back to when Michigan was first established as a territory, which is right after the Revolutionary War ended, actually. Congress created a big territory called the Northwest Territory, and Michigan was part of that. A few years later, the Michigan Territory itself was established to encompass basically what is now Michigan and Wisconsin. And then the United States went to war with the British again. That would be the War of 1812. And a very important event happened during that war that would forever change the future of Michigan. That event would be when the American commander surrendered the fort, Fort Detroit, to the British. William Hall was the governor of the Michigan Territory at the time, and being the governor of the Michigan Territory in 1812, more or less encompassed being the commander of Fort Detroit. There really wasn't a lot of activity going on in other parts of Michigan that necessitated a substantial governance structure. Now, that would change. Settlers would move into the territory in droves, actually, after the War of 1812. But for the time being, think of Michigan as, as a fairly desolate populated frontier outpost that had a substantial population of people that were not of European ancestry. Those would be the indigenous Anishinaabe peoples of Michigan who would stay for a number of years until they were forcefully removed by the government in the 1830s. That is an episode uh, that will be forthcoming. So at one point, we will discuss that here on Land Stories. But for now, we're going to look at Michigan starting in 1812 with the surrender of Detroit to the British. The Americans got Detroit back. They got all of Michigan back. And 
in doing so, people started moving into Michigan, many of whom came from New York. And after the Erie Canal was completed, even more people moved into Michigan, so much so that by 1837, Michigan was admitted into the Union as a state. Now, part of the agreement that Congress made with Michigan by admitting her into the Union as a state involved the state legislature agreeing to move the capital away from the border with British Canada within 10 years of admission into the Union. Detroit was seen as not a very good place for a capital of a state, given the fact that it had fallen to the British not that long before Michigan was admitted into the Union. So, legislature agrees to this, 1847 comes around, and it is time to pick a new capital city. As one might imagine, there were extensive lobbying efforts from pretty much every settled area in Michigan to have their town deemed the new capital. The state legislature grew tired of being lobbied so heavily, so what did they do? They went into a closed session of the legislature, and they ultimately selected an area that had just a couple dozen people known to be living in it at the time that was called Lansing Township. That is how Lansing becomes the capital of Michigan. The legislature chose a place that nobody lived. That was their solution to the problem of what they felt to be too much lobbying. And at first, they were going to actually name the town Michigan. But Michigan, comma, Michigan, didn't end up becoming the name of Michigan's capital. Instead, they took the name of the township, and that is how Lansing ends up being called Lansing. But that's only part of the story. Any place that is named after a man or a woman invariably has a very interesting story to be told of the man or the woman that the place is named after. And the story of John Lansing Jr. is certainly one such story. I already mentioned that he was born in Albany, New York in the 1750s. And it is from that birth that Lansing's life begins, of course, and eventually, he, he ends up becoming fairly prominent in the governance of the New York colony and later the New York state. Lansing was a delegate to the U.S. Constitutional Convention, actually, from the state of New York, having already served in other legal positions, actually. He was an attorney uh, before the Constitutional Convention occurred. And... There's a very brief correspondence, actually, even that occurred between Alexander Hamilton and John Lansing Jr. When Hamilton is on his way to the Annapolis Convention that had met the year prior, it was a convention that was organized essentially to address what we're seeing as some problems with the Articles of Confederation, which was what the United States was governed under before the Constitution. And probably the most important thing that happened at the Annapolis Convention was actually that men like Hamilton agreed that there should be another convention the following year that would further address problems in the Articles of Confederation. And that following convention is what became the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. John Lansing Jr. had been an attorney in New York, and he was chosen as one of the New York State delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And had Lansing signed the Constitution, 
and gone down in history as one of the signatories to that great document, he would be a well-known historical figure, perhaps. Probably more well-known than he ended up being, anyways. But Lansing believed that the new Constitution overstepped the uh, original purpose of the Convention of Philadelphia, which he saw was to fix problems with the Articles of Confederation, but not to completely change the way the United States was governed. Lansing, in, in some, believed that the states were giving up too many rights in adopting the Constitution. So he walks out of the Constitutional Convention, he goes back to the state of New York, and he advocates for the state to reject ratifying the Constitution. Ultimately, that rejection does not occur. New York ratifies the Constitution, and it becomes America's fundamental law, starting in 1789. Lansing, though, would go on to have quite the career after this. He ended up becoming the uh, state's chancellor, which at the time was the highest judicial position one could hold in the state of New York. And later on, he ended up holding other prominent positions, including Chief Justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and was quite involved in politics because, at the time, most men who were involved in politics were the attorneys. They were, after all, seen as those who would logically be in the business of writing laws because they knew the law. So Lansing then ends up being an anti-federalist that nonetheless continued to serve in various roles in the state of New York. As I said, he became the Chief Justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and he later became a regent on the University of the State of New York, which was a governing body that oversaw the state's university system. So he was quite prominent. His ancestry had set him up to some extent to be in a uh, position of prominence. After all, back then, it was not uncommon for a man who came from a fairly well-to-do family to end up becoming fairly well-to-do for himself. And the practice of law in early 1800s America was certainly one of the more prestigious uh, practices, one of the more prestigious professions one could get into. His large family actually ended up leaving um, quite the lineage behind, too, of people that could trace their ancestry back to John Lansing Jr. or his siblings, including, probably most well-known, would be the United States Secretary of State during the First World War, serving in the Woodrow Wilson administration, Robert Lansing. Uh, Robert Lansing's grandfather was one of John Lansing Jr.'s brothers. But what happened to John Lansing Jr.? The mystery surrounding the end of his life is in many ways, I think, one of the more intriguing parts of a connection to the story of Lansing, Michigan, and who it's named after. Lansing left the hotel in Manhattan that he was staying in at the time on the evening of the 12th of December, 1829. The story goes that he went out for a walk and was intending to find a boat that he could mail a letter on. And you may be thinking, well, why would you go to a boat to mail a letter? Well, at the time, mail was oftentimes carried by postal boats or boats that were contracted 
to carry the mail. And if one wanted to mail a letter that was not going to be simply delivered locally, in other words, across country, one would then go find a mailboat to drop the letter off into. And so Lansing evidently left his Manhattan apartment the, in the hotel he was staying in on the evening of the 12th of December, 1829, to go do this. That is the last anybody knows for certain of John Lansing Jr. What happened to him is a mystery. He disappeared. Body was never found. And so if foul play was involved, there was never any evidence to prove it. And the disappearance of John Lansing Jr. is not something that's ever actually been solved. However, there are a few possibilities to explore of what might have happened to the man that Lansing is ultimately named after. He could have had an accident. He could have fallen into the river, for example, and drowned. He could have had some other type of a naturally occurring accident that would have rendered him in a position where he eventually died, and somehow his body was never found. He could have been the victim of street crime in New York. After all, that was not uncommon at the time for men to run into unfortunate circumstances where they would be robbed or perhaps murdered after being robbed, and maybe that is what ended up happening to Lansing. There is a third intriguing possibility of what happened to John Lansing Jr., and this is really where the mystery of his disappearance comes into the picture. By the time John Lansing Jr. disappeared at the end of 1829, a man by the name of Thurl Weed had already been elected to the New York State Assembly. And Thurl Weed turns out to be one of the state of New York and New York City's most influential politicians in the decades before the Civil War. Lansing, by 1829, as we've discussed, had already become quite involved in some of the important governance structure of New York City. And Thurl Weed quickly rose through the political power structure of the state of New York and increasingly New York City. Thoroughweed would be known to history for many of the things that New York City has nowadays that in some ways can be traced back to him, including New York Harbor, the development of the city's railway connections to the rest of the United States, and probably most notably, the work that he did on forming commission to build Central Park and govern Central Park after it was built. When the Whig Party disintegrated over the issue of slavery, Thoroughweed becomes one of the founding fathers of the Republican Party. And he would go on to influence the Lincoln administration and had major political impacts on the United States. So where does he come into our picture? Well, Thoroughweed, having been involved in New York, evidently may have known what happened to John Lansing Jr. And this is where the intrigue element really comes into our story. Thoroughweed died in 1882, and around about the time of his death, his grandson, T.W. Barnes, published his memoirs. And in Weed's memoirs, he wrote that he may have known what happened to John Lansing Jr. He said that Lansing had been murdered by a conspiracy of men who had believed that John Lansing Jr. was standing in the way of their own political ambitions. And Weed claimed that the men who had showed him sources proving this had demanded that Weed 
swore an oath that he would never say anything about this until those men had passed away. Well, by the time Weed's memoirs were published, those men had indeed died, but Weed was reluctant and in the end refused to publish any names of the sources that he claimed to have had. So basically what Weed was saying was that he had information given to him by men who knew what happened to John Lansing Jr. and therefore could solve the mystery possibly, but because he was reluctant to reveal who his sources were, that mystery never got solved beyond the point of Thurl Weed's uh, confession, if you will, or at least admission of knowledge of what might have happened to John Lansing Jr. in the memoirs that Thurl Weed's grandson, T.W. Barnes, published. So it has now been nearly 200 years since John Lansing Jr. disappeared after his evidently fateful late-night stroll in Manhattan in December of 1829. John Lansing Jr.'s legacy, as I said, had quite the impact long-term, his siblings being part of that legacy, whereas his brother's grandson ended up being, as I mentioned previously, the Secretary of State during the First World War, serving in the Woodrow Wilson administration. Lansing's family members also went on to be involved in other aspects of political life, and the family remained quite prominent throughout the middle part of the 1800s. John Lansing Jr.'s widow didn't live very much longer after Lansing himself disappeared. She died in January of 1834 and is buried in Albany, or near Albany, New York. So we have Lansing, Michigan. We have Lansing, New York. We have Lansing, Illinois. Lansing, Kansas. And Lansing, New York, which is where Lansing, Michigan, gets its name. And in doing so, Lansing, Michigan, takes its name from John Lansing, Jr., a man who was connected, in one way or the other, of quite a bit of important aspects of early life in Michigan, and New York State, and around the United States. So the next time you're strolling through downtown Lansing, or you're driving on a highway in Michigan, and you see a sign pointing to head down this highway to head to Lansing, or Lansing is this many miles away, or if you see the name Lansing Community College, the other mentions of this name, you will now have, hopefully, a little bit of an idea of the man and a little bit of the mystery behind the name of Lansing. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Connecting you with Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College Performing Arts features several events and presentations throughout the year. Find more information by visiting lcc.edu slash showinfo. 
I really didn't feel safe anymore at home. Every year, tens of thousands of youth experience homelessness. The possibility of sleeping out on a park bench. It's not something that a 15-year-old should have to think about. 1-800-RUNAWAY provides 24-hour access to a nationwide network of housing and support services. I felt such warmth. I felt comfort. I felt safe. Call 1-800-RUNAWAY. Go to 1-800-RUNAWAY.org or text 66008. We can end youth homelessness. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hello, I'm Dr. Tanya Bailey, and welcome to Arts, Artists, and Advocates, a podcast-based program designed with you in mind. You can find more content on demand at lccconnect.com. Go ahead, do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations and performances that explores diversity, equity, and inclusion through the arts and activism lens. We're highlighting the work of people on our campus and in our community that's making a difference. Health is the new wealth. It's a term that many are saying all across our nation. After the pandemic, we've seen a rise in health disparities. Well, on today's show, we have an amazing guest that's gonna help us understand why health really is the new wealth. Please help me welcome Melania Brim to Arts, Artists, and Advocates. Welcome. Thank you for having me. The crowd is going wild. I hear that. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. We want to learn who is Ms. Brim. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and how does that influence the work that you do? So that's a great question, and I kind of ask myself that quite often. (laughs) Who Um, am I? (laughs) Yeah, who am I? Um, So I grew up in Michigan. Nice. And left for a while. Traveled around southern Indiana, Kentucky, northern Kentucky, came back to Michigan in 1991. Mm. I've spent um, pretty much 50 years in and around healthcare wow. in different capacities. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of my jobs were in the public sector and working with marginalized population. Mm. And so I've kind of carried that forward kind of throughout my career. Nice. I love that. I love that. So in your current position, let our listeners know what you're doing uh, and how does it positively advocate for this community? So I am president and CEO of Michigan Health Council. We are a nonprofit organization located in Okemos. Mm. Uh, Our focus is on building, strengthening and enhancing the capacity of the healthcare workforce. Nice. It is a good, good purpose. Um, You know, I think our mission statement Mm -hmm. um, probably speaks to the commitment that we make to communities across the state. Mm. And that is that every person has access to the right team of healthcare professionals to meet their health needs. I'm going to have you rewind that one more time. I'd be happy to. <laughs> every person mm-hmm. has access to the right team of healthcare professionals to meet their health needs. I love it. That says it all. I don't know I who think- came up with that, but brilliantly said. Uh, and I know that you're living up to that mission for sure. But talk to our listeners about how does diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you know that's what this show is all about. <laughs> how does that align with your mission? Or what does it really mean to you? And why is it important? So I think I'd like to start by maybe coming at it from a personal perspective. Please, yes. um, so uh, I have a 23-year-old daughter mm-hmm. who four and a half years ago, following back surgery, found herself in a wheelchair for life. 
Um, you know, it was obviously hard for us to accept that our daughter had ended up in one of those um, identity dimensions that we're mm-hmm. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, people, and hers is, of course, people with disabilities. Uh, learning to navigate her way through the system, hmm. uh, through this new paradigm, um, while she discovered that there were lots of opportunities mm-hmm. for people with disabilities, she's also discovered, we've discovered, um, that there are still lots of challenges when it comes to equity mm-hmm. and inclusion. And so I bring that with me every day. I love it. Yeah. So, and then speaking a little bit more to my work, mm-hmm. um, I would start with my belief that healthcare is a right for all. Mm. And through that lens, when I think about DEI, I think it means about having the right people in the right place at the right time, providing the right care to all people. And I believe you're living out that vision <laughs> so clearly. And thank you for being a champion uh, for your daughter and so many others. I know that you're a spokesperson for that. Um, I'm going to say a quote to you. We're going to go totally off script. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the quote is this, uh, racism is a public health crisis. What does that quote say to you and the work that you do? So I, I think uh, that when you think about racism and public health, mm-hmm. uh, it drives me immediately to health disparities. Mm. And um, impact, and I, and I, you know, we we know some things from research about uh, the impact of uh, of racism on health outcomes mm-hmm. and health disparities, mm-hmm. and that's what public health is all about. Wow. Um, and you know, some of the work that we're doing at the health council is designed to address some of the some factors mm-hmm. uh, that have an impact on health equity and health outcomes. It does. Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think the pandemic has taught us a lot uh, and has exposed a lot. And I know that with um, the uh, MHC, uh, (laughs) Michigan Health Council, I know that you're not only talking about these issues, but you're also putting things in place. And we're going to we're going to dive into that a little bit in the show. Uh, But first, I want us to play a game. We call it the game called If. (laughs) Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So this game works like this. I'll say a statement that begins with the word if, and you'll fill in the blank or answer the statement. Ready to go? Are there good prizes? Oh, there's great prizes. (laughs) Cars, houses, you name it. Just kidding. Okay. (laughs) All right. Here we go. If diversity was a car, what would it be and why? She's thinking. <laughs> so um, I'm actually going to default on this one. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, I think that there are um, a lot of stereotypes associated with mm. different cars. She's changing the game. Yes. I am. So, for example, <laughs> the F-150 truck. Okay. Often, you know, white male. Mm. Um, Subaru has been linked at times with lesbians. Yeah. Um, energy efficient electric cars are energy, you know, conservers, typically liberal. Mm. So I think, you know, we all identify with our cars. Yeah. And so to say that there is a car that is um, versatile enough Mm -hmm. that it cuts across different sectors, I I couldn't come up with one. You are winning, I promise you. (laughs) Okay. Our producers are like, what? We got a whole new perspective to this game. (laughs) I love it. Okay, two more questions, and you're doing great. 
if inclusion, and feel free to flip the script on this one too, if inclusion was a dessert, what would that be? A banana split. Oh, all off the cuff. You already knew. Banana split. (laughs) So it's got uh, bananas. It's got multiple kinds of ice cream, maybe Neapolitan, strawberry, Mm -hmm. chocolate, vanilla. Um, (laughs) It's got whipped cream. It's got peanuts. It's got chocolate sauce or butterscotch. It's Mm. got, it includes a whole bunch of stuff. And when you take a bite of it, you try to scoop a little bit of everything. You do. Oh, I love that. Brilliantly said. So next time you come on, we're having a banana split, right? I'm all in. It's on me. Doing well. Crowd loves you. The crowd loves you. Here's our final question in the game called If. If equity was an article of clothing, what would it be and why? It would be jeans. Mm. Um, Everyone can wear them. Mm -hmm. You can be casual. You can be formal. Mm. Um, They fit. They adjust and fit to you. um, So everyone can wear them. I love that. Give it up, everybody. (laughs) I love it. So no cars, no houses, none of that, but lots of, lots of applause. (laughs) I'll take it. And you got a banana split coming. Awesome. I'll take it. Thank you so much for playing the game. I love the game. Thank you. So in our next segment, I want us to do a little bit more discussion around healthcare careers, diversity, equity, inclusion, and and perhaps the impact of the pandemic on our community as relates to healthcare and more. Uh, Talk to us about what MHC is, and please, I'm doing that on purpose so you can continue to say it for our listeners. How is MHC leading the charge in these areas? As I mentioned earlier, our focus is on improving workforce capacity. And when I talk about capacity, mm-hmm. a lot of people think about it in terms of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like to think of it as much broader than that, mm-hmm. um, that in addition to making sure we have enough um, to, to meet the demand, but that we also have um, a workforce that is competent to care for the people they serve. And, mm-hmm. you know, that cuts across a lot of skills, knowledge, ability to serve their patients well. Mm-hmm. You know, it brings me to things like cultural humility, yes. uh, the ability to communicate effectively with their patients, recognize um, cultural customs mm-hmm. in their care of patients. So really think about it. So some of our programs are, are designed to address kind of multiple dimensions of capacity. Um, for example, one of them is our mini medical school program. That's mm. for our K to five kids. Um, really, ch- it's about changing the diversity of the pipeline of students uh, to post secondary. Um, so we, get to, we we go into schools, typically in communities that we would describe as um, underserved. Okay. Um, bring a program to students mm-hmm. that introduces health careers to them. Nice. Uh, teaches them a few things about health and wellness and. In my book, more importantly, trying to um, to build some aspirational thinking in those students. I love that. I love that. So um, Michigan Health Council um, is doing their best to address health inequities, right? They're doing everything they can. Can you describe uh, some additional things that you all are doing to help address health inequities? And particularly, you know, the pandemic um opened up a Pandora's box, you know, that a lot of uh, individuals were not aware of that was happening. So speak to that as well. Sure. Um, so I, I guess I would start by saying that, you know, we one of the things we know from research is that outcomes, uh, health outcomes, um, improve dramatically mm-hmm. when a patient and their provider are very similar. Mm. Same race, same ethnicity, mm. um, same cultural background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And, and when they're not, we have a different set of outcomes mm-hmm. leading to some leading again to health disparities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think that's one thing. So, so that leads us to how, you know, we really have to work on changing the pipeline. Yes. You know, we, that's, you know, and, and that's really a, a K to 12, um, getting more students of color, more mm-hmm. students from different cultures, uh, even gender differences, you know, mm-hmm. nursing is a predominantly female, you know, we need to, you know, so across identity dimensions, we really need to be able to change what the workforce looks like. Um, and again, the, you know, COVID really helped to do that as well. Um, and that we saw that with those disparities, particularly in communities um, where that's happening. Um, but we also know that our, the, the, when you look at the um, demographics mm-hmm. of our patients and you compare them to the demographics of our workforce, right. there's a gap. And so that's really some of the work we're doing through our nursing diversity team. We're really trying to figure out, you know, how do we help um, close that gap so that the population um, and the workforce looks a little bit more similar because we know that leads to better outcomes. It absolutely does. Thank, thank you for sharing those those items. Anything you will want to relate uh, MH, MHC, Michigan Health Council, mm-hmm. to the work you're doing around DEI? And you've been mentioning it, yeah. but anything specific around yeah. diversity, equity, inclusion? Yeah. So I actually got two programs that I, I think um, address some aspects of that, different factors that that, ha- that play into it. One of them is certainly um, our work on implicit bias. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but all health professionals licensed in Michigan um, now have to have um, education in implicit bias. And that came out of the governor's task force mm-hmm. on the disparities uh, of COVID, yes. uh, the impact of COVID on, on uh, uh, I forget how it was exactly titled, but out of that was this recommendation that everybody needed to have some training on implicit bias. Absolutely. And so we've rolled that training out um, and making that available uh, to individuals and organizations to help people to really understand, um, you know, our training's a little different too, and we we really want people to understand um, how basic bias where it comes from, mm. um, and and we talk about across all of the identity dimensions. Um, so um, it touches on race and gender and age and uh, body uh, habitus and mm. or body size, um, disabil- people with disabilities, and so we, we want people to really understand their. There are so many ways that our, we bring our biases, and those biases, as shown in research, mm-hmm. have an impact on health outcomes. Absolutely. And we understand that the more a patient has more uh, connections with their healthcare provider, feel comfortable, yep. the better health that they'll be. And that means breaking down some of those uh, implicit biases yep. uh, as we go forward. And so thank you uh, for leading the charge yep. with that through, through the council. Um, here on the show... We also like to do what I would call a deeper dive, uh, getting comfortable with uncomfortable conversations about race, because we've been talking about it just a little bit today. So I want to ask you personally, what uh, was your first recollection of your racial identity? So I grew up in two communities Mm -hmm. that were predominantly white, Mm -hmm. and I don't think I ever thought about my racial identity. Mm -hmm. Until I went to started school at MSU, okay, and um, I found myself uh, meeting people of all varieties, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's when I first realized that uh, I I was not alone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I and that was a hard one for me to think about. I I, I was like, what? Like I don't really remember thinking about it again until I start. I think started college. Well, you know, we ask that question here on the show often because we want people to have 
uh, an opportunity to share their stories. And, and they've been so vast, so such a variety of different responses to that. Some at the age of four, some, you know, at the age of 54. You know, um, I think it's important for us to think about our first recollection of our racial identity um, because it helps to tell um, not only where we're from, but also the variety of uh, stories and sharing of our differences of where we are and where we're going. So I, I love that. I also um, want to give you an opportunity to talk about um, how diversity, equity, inclusion um, for you, uh, where how you want to leave a mark on the world in DEI, because I know that's near and dear to your heart, having yes. had uh, the opportunity to work with you in, in many different circles. Tell our audience for you how you want to leave a mark on the world with DEI. Sure. For the last several years, I, I teach a class, one, just one session uh, for a nursing program on mm -hmm. health disparities. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably for five or six years now. Um, and I have in, in that uh, used a quote from Martin Luther King mm -hmm. um, that I love. I mean, I, and, and when you hear it, mm -hmm. I, I will share it with you. It's not one you should love, mm -hmm. but it it says so much, okay. um, and that is uh, that of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Mm. And the first time I used this quote in mm -hmm. my presentation, it was exactly 50 years from the date that he said it. Wow. And I remember looking at the class and saying to them, you do realize that this statement is just as true today mm -hmm. as it was 50 years ago. Wow. So in terms of my mark, I would like to think that I've done uh, a small part in moving us further and further away from that quote, quote being true. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. That's one of That's, my favorites. I, I, I use it. that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, as, as you mentioned, uh, we still have to use yeah. it. It, yeah. it still it's rings a, it's true a, it's, today. It's a painful truth. It's, it's a painful yeah. truth. Yeah. Listen, I want folks to know how they could support, get involved uh, with the Michigan Health Council. What would you say to our listeners? What, what's happening? What's new projects? How can people get involved and support? Yeah. So one of the things I, I wanted to talk um, uh, along the lines when... Um, in terms of some programming we, we're doing, mm -hmm. um, is also our work on health literacy mm. um, that we're doing currently uh, through a grant funded through the Michigan Health Endowment Fund. And, and we're really focusing on um, trying to change the way that providers communicate with their patients. Mm -hmm. Because we know that oftentimes when they don't commun effect communicate effectively, um, there's misinformation, right. there's miscommunication. And what that ends up leading to is poor health outcomes because the patient didn't understand what they were being told or asked to do. Mm -hmm. um, so we are focused on, on educating the providers about how to recognize and when they may be working with someone who has lower levels of literacy. Mm -hmm. And how can I you know, make sure that they're hearing what I'm saying? And so that's a really important program that we're building out um, and, uh, in terms awesome. of some long-term, in, 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 in kind of partnership with the implicit bias. Yeah. Um, so that's really important. Um, so another place that we're trying to do some additional work, as I mentioned, our five uh, K to five program. Mm -hmm. And so now we're trying to work on the middle school, oh. expanding into that, recognizing that um, when you're trying to change the trajectory of the workforce, starting with high school kids is too late. Yeah, the it's earlier the better. The earlier the better. Mm -hmm. So we're trying, we're working on that. In terms of how people can get involved, a um, couple things. Um, certainly, you can go to our website, which mm -hmm. is mhc.org. Very easy. Real simple. Yeah, <laughs> mhc.org. 
Uh, there's lots of information out there. Uh, if you're a nurse, mm-hmm. um, you can get involved with the Michigan Nursing Action Coalition. Um, we're currently working on a, a couple things, some health equity projects, mm-hmm. diversity in the workforce, um, and also engaging nurses in board leadership in organizations throughout communities to yes. bring their, their lens uh, to the table. Mm-hmm. If you're a health profession student, you can volunteer to talk with kids as part of our mini medical school. Mm. Um, and you can just reach out to me. And I'll find a way for you to get. Find I'll find a way for you to get involved with <laughs> at us. MHC.org. At MHC.org. <laughs> I absolutely have enjoyed having you here on the program. It has been a, a delight. Uh, I hope that our listeners will will reach out to you and learn more. I hope that there are listeners that are thinking healthcare field might be the yes. way for me to go. <laughs> that, we we would love to have that happen. Absolutely, because there's great individuals like you that is willing to help them come along. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you to everyone uh, for listening and tuning in today to Arts, Artists, and Advocates. Our show today was uniquely entitled Health is the New Wealth. And we're so thankful that you joined us. This has been a podcast broadcast, and we want you to find more information on lccconnect.com. Go ahead and do it today. Arts, Artists, and Advocates is a series of conversations and performances that explore diversity, equity, and inclusion through the arts and activism. We are highlighting the work of those on our campus as well as those in our community that is doing and making a difference. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, This has been Dr. Tanya Bailey, your host, telling you, reminding you that you matter. We'll see you next time. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. Far from the city where the Lorax roams free is the home of a magical truffle trees. They grow happy and healthy and thick as you please, just waiting for visits from yous and from me's. In a place you will love with things you'll adore us, it's a magical spot. We call it the forest. Look, everyone here needs the trees. And who are you? Wait, wait, I'm, I'm the Lorax. Guardian of the forest. I speak for the trees. Visit the animals. Come see the plants. From the mighty sequoia to the tiniest ants. Discover its beauty. Take time to relax. See brown barbalutes or even the Lorax. I feel so alive. (laughs) I just like hearing you say it. The forest is there for you to explore. So come once to see it, then come back lots more. Visit discovertheforest.org. This message has been brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Lansing Community College students now have the option to go beyond an associate degree through LCC's University Center. The University Center is a partnership between LCC and five four-year universities. Located on LCC's downtown campus, these universities offer junior and senior level courses, leading to more than 30 bachelor's degrees, several post-baccalaureate certificates, and options to obtain a master's degree. Current and former LCC students can take advantage of the convenient location at the corner of Capitol Avenue and Shiawassee Street on LCC's downtown campus. 
find out more about the University Center, visit lcc.edu. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. You're listening to Art Happens Here, the podcast that explores the often curious and occasionally amazing art installations on, in, and around the campuses of Lansing Community College. I'm your host, Bruce Mackley. Like many professions, graphic design is comprised of numerous subdisciplines, like color theory, composition, typography, and various other visually expressive and interpretive skills. Some of the underlying principles within those can include balance, emphasis, proportion, and so on. Within this realm, I can't think of anything more outwardly simple yet inwardly complex as typography. The written word is one of the oldest and most fundamental forms of visual communication that exists. In today's world, this form balances that communication with style and purposeful design. It's kind of an art unto itself. There's an old joke about television as a medium because it's neither rare nor well done. And as long as I can remember, I've been impressed at how something so clearly defined by audio and moving visuals still relies so heavily on typography. We'd been kicking around an idea for another outdoor installation. Some creative wayfinding display or sculpture that used words or phrases. What we ultimately arrived at was a 12 foot tall um, kiosk, a four-sided monolithic object with, with, with words and phrases cut out. Dozens of aspirational words in various languages wrapping around all four sides and fitting together kind of like a puzzle. There'd be some typographic art elements and general wayfinding woven in and some of the words would redefine themselves around the corners like learn into earn and uh, community into unity and that type of thing. You know viewed from any angle it would appear or come across like uh, some type of modern day relic you know. Um, hieroglyphics at a distance, something like that. This particular project took nearly two years to realize, and not because of any slow approval processes or lack of materials. Um, I'm going to take a slight detour towards something which has little to do with the outcome of this particular project, but I think the message it contains is worth it. So, it's halfway through the design work um, on, on the typography end of things, you know, the balance and the nuancing and the languaging and so on. I think I'd been at it for like a week or two. And uh, one Monday morning, it was actually um, October 13th, Monday, October 13th, 2016. Uh, came into work in the morning, uh, first one there, marched up the stairs. Uh, marketing's located on the second floor uh, in our building. Two big flights of stairs, went up the stairs, opened the door, and the door to the uh, department is beautiful. It's this large glass slab, you know, with a lock situated at the bottom. You know, it throws the deadbolt into the floor. So, you know, you stoop down, crouch down, wiggle your key in, get, you know, get it unlocked, and in you go. So I did that, you know, uh, crouched down, turned the lock, and uh, stood up. And that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember was being hustled into an ambulance. Uh, <laughs> I, um, looking up, it was almost cinematic, you know, the ring of concerned faces, you know, and I'm, I'm in this, this um, stretcher carriage thing and not feeling at the top of my game with, 
you know, blood all over the back of my head and world, you know, everything was spinning and whatnot. It turned out I, I, I passed out. I just blacked right out and went backward and hit, hit the back of my head on the cement floor in the department. It's carpeted, but it is thin carpet. So I wound up at the hospital. I stayed there for a few days, um, I think two and a half days or whatever, and not a fun ride. Plenty of vertigo and migraines and all this. You know, obviously it was a concussion of some kind. Um, got out, still clueless as to what triggered this, um, and was uh, compromised with regard to, um, you know, first my cognitive abilities and um, my perceptive abilities. It was very, very humbling. Um, I had to take like six months off work at least, you know, and even after that I went back, you know, I worked from home part-time. And um, I'm only drawing uh, attention to this because the the kiosk project represented professionally um, for me. It was um, it drew heavily on an understanding of how type works. And after the accident, I was uh, I I was derpy for quite a while, and things that were effortless to me before were just out of reach. You know, they were closed off, and it was just something I'll never forget. Some of the simplest things that on the computer or within programs or pick one, you know, that I could no longer do. You know, I just couldn't. It's not that I, I couldn't remember how to do it, but I couldn't do it. It's, it's as if I, I'd never done it before. Interestingly, as a side note, uh, did you know driving with a concussion is illegal in Michigan? Yeah, I found that out. Weird, huh? Anyway, uh, so at any rate, Time went on, and I got back to work. Resumed the uh, the kiosk project. The project uh, turned out great. I mean, they they sent the uh, the forms off to I believe it was either Douglas Steel. I think it was Auro. They have a laser that cuts half inch thick aluminum. It cuts aluminum. I still can't get my head around a laser powerful enough. I know, I know. We're living in the future, but uh, the words it all came through beautifully. We decided to use uh, four polycarbonate inserts. This is uh, kind of a frosted, thin plastic you see in uh, backlit signage and so on, and it's bulletproof. This stuff lasts forever. Um, we applied both blue and green film to the to the polycarbonate, so certain words would appear in certain colors. LEDs were designed and installed within the kiosk, and there was a cap situated on top. It was all custom. You know, the, um, the footings and, the, and the, the pedestal were put in. The kiosk was installed and leveled. And, and the whole thing was approved, you know, through um, our architecture firm to be sure that, you know, that it would work. Because you know, all these one-offs, you had to do that. One of my fears was, and it was totally, totally kind of misguided, but based on my own misspent youth, was, you know, what if somebody wants to climb this thing? You know, kids, I remember this really dumb things that I used to do as a kid, being bored and, you know, I pictured somebody climbing this thing and getting a finger caught and, you know, just all these bad outcomes, but that hasn't happened, nor I don't think it will happen. At night, you know, it lights up and it is, it's remarkably unique, um, especially when the pavement's wet, because you get these strong reflections of the color in the pavement, you know one of those things that you just don't factor in you didn't imagine until it's real huh? it's uh, there we have a um, we have a video 
there's a video of a student, an international student, uh, coming in and he's standing in front of this thing. He turns with this giant smile on his face and they're interviewing him. And he's, yeah, that's, that's my language. You know, it's hello in my language. And it, it just, <laughs> it was, so, it was so cool, you know, seeing his face light up like that and having something, something he could identify with, you know, so, so personally here on the campus of Lansing Community College. Um, it's on our downtown campus. Come see it. Um, as far as the head injury goes, I only brought that up really to, to point out a few, a few things. Last year, there were over 56,000 uh, fatalities caused from head trauma. That is not a made up number. 56,000. I did some, you know, some looking around and I was interested in this and it's staggering. There was a, an online forum, I think it was Reddit, where a question was posed to all the, uh, the medical professionals out there. And the question was, medical professionals of Reddit, if you could impart one piece of advice, one tip to increase the quality of someone's life, what would it be? And of course, you know, there's this, uh, this flood of comments, but the top comment, the very top comment overwhelmingly was, uh, hang on to the handrail. When you're going up the stairs and down the stairs, just use the handrail. Just, just, can you do that? And it had to do with these accidents that, you know, people are, got their, arm, their arms loaded up and they're going on up and down the stairs and, you know, hit your head and it could be uh, game over, you know? So it's kind of a thing. Um, so regarding the feigning, I, uh, I did get an appointment with uh, a neurospecialist out at MSU and they got me in. He must have had an opening, you know, really, really smart guy. And, uh, he had all these strange questions, not just about the injury, but about the time preceding the injury and so on. And um, what he arrived at, the cause of, of, of this accident that sidelined side me for so long was skinny pants. Yeah, skinny pants. That, that, was, the, uh, that was the motivating cause. It, it's, it, it blew my mind, you know, how, did, how he deducted this, but you know, going up the stairs, these big flights of stairs, I'm wearing these, you know, these pants, you know, the, the, the slacks that are, you know, skinny pants, thin. Um, got up the stairs, got the blood going, um, crouched down to unlock the door. Um, and the, the, the pants cut off my blood flow behind my knees. You know, it halted it, you know, momentarily. Um, getting the key in there and getting the lock. Then when I stood up, you know, it released it. And that rush of blood caused me to faint. And that was it. Uh, that was skinny pants. So um, I guess if there's any takeaway, it's uh, to be mindful of wardrobe choices as they apply to daily functionality. Bob Marley once said, enjoy life now. This is not a rehearsal. If you want to check out what I've been talking about, just visit this episode at lccconnect.org. Art Happens Here is a production of LCC Connect. Thanks for lending us your imagination. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. 
Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.